Are you looking forward to that day that faith turns to sight? Our pilgrim days end, and we are in the presence of our Lord, and we won't need to pray for anything because we will have everything, and we will praise Him endlessly. That, that, that's a glorious thought. I, my heart's warmed just thinking about it, but I, uh, that's not my sermon this morning. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5 as we dive back into what it's like to live in this world in between the already and the not yet of the Christian life. Parents, if you have kids who are going to school, one of the things that you anticipate about midway through their term, maybe uh, almost halfway into the semester, is what's called a progress report. Uh, It's a mid-course evaluation to tell you how Johnny or Susie is doing in their classes. And uh, it will help parents to know, is my child doing well, or is a mid-course correction necessary? I'll never forget my my sophomore year in college. uh, I was taking a freshman English course. Now, I already had a year of college under my belt, and I'd been writing papers for my history classes, so I had a pretty decent idea how to write on a college level. And so I was kind of skating along doing fairly well in this English class for freshmen. And Parents Weekend came around, and I took my parents to meet all my professors, and, and, and we came to my English professor's office, and, and he met my parents, was very kind, and he said, uh, and by the way, I want to tell you that at the beginning of the semester, your son was at the top of the class, but he's not anymore because he hasn't worked hard. That was not a progress report I wanted my mom and dad to hear. But these progress reports... Help us to see where improvements need to be made. And so you might call the text that we're looking at this morning a spiritual progress report. And the results, sadly, are not very encouraging. These Hebrew believers that are being addressed here are in serious need of a mid-course correction. Now, as we read this and go through this this morning, I don't want us to simply think about these nameless, faceless Hebrew Christians 2,000 years ago. I want us to see ourselves. I want us to look into the mirror of God's Word, and as if you were receiving a progress report, how would these words apply to your life and to mine? Four major headings or points in this message. First of all, a concerning report, and then secondly, a reasonable expectation, and thirdly, a standard for our assessment, and then finally, a call to action. A concerning report, a reasonable expectation, a standard for assessment, and then a call to action. So let's look first of all this concerning report in verse 11. We read about this, speaking of, the, of, the, of the, the, the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ distinct from the Levitical priesthood. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He says about this, we have uh, much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The writer here, he's a faithful pastor. He expresses deep concern for his readers. And we see this concern uh, uh, mentioned numerous times throughout uh, various warnings in the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 2, he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. A warning not to drift away. And chapter 4, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, referring to the Israelites who fell in the wilderness. And then we read here in uh, chapter 5 that you have become dull of hearing and you need milk, 
not solid food. And there are numerous other warnings and admonitions throughout the book of Hebrews because we're reading the writing of a faithful pastor, a faithful under-shepherd of his people. And the report is not encouraging. There's a need for a mid-course correction. Now, again, the immediate context is speaking of Jesus as our high priest and how he is distinct from Levitical high priests. He is, his priesthood is utterly unique. It's after the order of Melchizedek. And he says, I have, we have much to write about this. And he actually does once we get to chapter 7 and chapter 8. Before he does that, he says, it's, it's hard to explain, not because it's overly complex or complicated. The difficulty is not uh, uh, that... The, uh, that, the, that the matter is particularly uh, complex. Now, for us here in 2023, the concept of priesthood might actually be kind of unfamiliar in terms of the priesthood of the, uh, in, in the temple in Jerusalem. We know of it historically, but we've never actually seen it take place. We don't know about the sacrifice of bulls and lambs and the blood and the veil. We've not seen that. These first century Hebrew Christians, that was something of their personal experience. Now, we may not have categories for some of these ideas the way they did, but that's not the reason it's hard to explain. The difficulty is that they've become dull of hearing. It's not an intellectual condition, it's a moral and a spiritual condition. So I ask from the outset, are there places, are there ways which you have become dull of hearing? Now, what does it even mean? What does it mean to be dull of hearing? In, in Hebrews 6, verse 12, uh, just a page over, he says uh, in verse 11, we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope to the end. In other words, don't be dull, but be earnest so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The word sluggish is the very same word as dull. You could say you've not become sluggish of hearing. It sounds like they've already become somewhat sluggish. They were out of shape spiritually. Their endurance was flagging. In Romans and Hebrews 12, we're told to, uh, to lift your drooping hands and to strengthen your weak knees. Their spiritual zeal seemed to be flickering. Their hands were drooping. Their knees were wobbly. Earlier, they were running the race that was marked out for them. Now, they were either limping or they were even distracted from that race, and their progress seemed to be significantly impaired. Now, the dullness the writer is referring to, he says, is a dullness of hearing. Now, that can mean a number of things. It can mean they had lost interest in spiritual matters particularly the deeper teachings about our Lord. They're, you know, give, give me the basics, but getting into all this priesthood thing and the complication of the various sacrifices, uh, that, that's a little complicated. I'm not really, uh, I'm not really tracking with that. Uh, it, it seems like early in their Christian lives, they manifested a deep spiritual hunger. They were eager to receive the word, to study the word, to grow in grace. And many of you can look back to the early days of your Christian experience and say, yes, I had this this ravenous spiritual hunger, and I read my Bible, and I thought about it, I, I, I meditated on it, I memorized it, I talked about it, and life happened. And when life happens, sometimes we get dull of hearing. 
Whereas earlier, like the Bereans, they poured over the Word to see if what they were being taught really was what God's Word teaches. Now that appetite seems to have waned a bit. That's one possibility. It could also mean you're no longer teachable. Even though you were very receptive to the Word initially, and you were teachable, and you were quick to hear, and you were uh, quick to repent, and quick to change where it was called for, now you seem like you've got it all in your hip pocket. I know the Bible. I know sound doctrine. Uh, And that's a particular challenge, I'd say, for Reformed believers, because we do put an emphasis on sound doctrine. And we can feel like, well, I've got all my theological ducks in a row. What else do I need? And then when we allow that to happen, we start gradually becoming less and less responsive to the exhortations of the Word, to the places where God's Word calls us to repent and to change and to make those mid-course corrections. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul writes, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And there are those, because of spiritual and intellectual and theological pride, they feel like I've got it all in my hip pocket. I don't need the the reproof part. I don't need the correction part. I I, I don't need the training in righteousness part. I've got it figured out. And you can't tell them anything because they already know. They don't want to hear it. That training in righteousness speaks of an application of the truths that you know. And I would ask you, are, are Are the truths that you know being applied in a fruitful way, or is it just head knowledge? Because if it's just head knowledge, you become dull of hearing. Well, how does that happen? How does a Christian become dull of hearing? He says, you have become dull of hearing, which means that wasn't what you were initially. Earlier on, you seemed to be eager to hear the Word and to apply the Word and even to share the Word, but now... There's this dullness that's crept in. And there are a number of factors that can lead to that. In Ephesians, or excuse me, in, in Revelation, when Jesus uh, addresses the seven churches, he tells the Ephesians, you have not tolerated false teaching. You have, 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 have opposed those who would distort the truth. But I have this against you. You have lost your first love. You've been zealous for the truth, And yet the truth has not led you to love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've become preoccupied with other things, maybe enamored by the pleasures and the entertainments and the occupations of this world. But whatever the case, their spiritual sensitivity had become dull. Another possibility is spiritual pride, as I was referring to a moment ago. This intellectual faith that's devoid of any real heart communion with God that's devoid of humility and dependence upon the Lord. I tell people, you say you believe in the doctrines of grace, but if the doctrines of grace do not produce a graciousness in your life, you don't yet understand them. We you may have heard the term a cage stage Calvinist, a person who learns the doctrines of grace, and he's so zealous for these truths, he becomes obnoxious and trying to impose that on everybody else because somehow he thinks he's better than everybody else, and he has it, and they don't. 
My response is, if the doctrines of grace have not made you humble and gracious, you're not a Calvinist. You don't understand yet what Calvin was teaching from the Word of God. You may be a cage stage, something else, but that's not true Calvinism. Calvinism is experiential, and it embraces Christ, and it's humbling, and it makes us gracious. And that pride that focuses on the the intellectual and not the heart issues, it oftentimes can lead to a failure to guard the heart. That's behind the, the, the warning that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, who says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You think you're fine. You say, well, that could never happen to me. Watch out. You can become so fascinated with doctrine in itself not as a means to know Jesus better and to love Jesus more, but just having all your ducks in a row. And that's a very dangerous place to be. It makes you dull of hearing. There's also the hardening effect of sin. If you look across the page, at least in my Bible, Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13, we read, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's unbelief that can lead us, that can harden our hearts and lead us to fall away. But he goes on and he says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we tolerate sin in our lives, if we carve out a part of our lives and we protect sin, that pet sin, that besetting sin that we're not willing to break with, there's a hardening and a deceiving effect. And the result is we become dull of hearing And you may hear and you may go, yeah, I know, I need to work on this, but you don't. You may even acknowledge. It's like in James 1 where he says, uh, you you look in the mirror and you see what needs to be addressed and you don't worry about it. You walk away as if you'd never seen it. You become a hearer, but not a doer of the word. You're dull of hearing, ineffective. And there's all manner of causes for unbelief. It can be from just discouragement, weariness, doubt, maybe, maybe disappointment in others uh, that have produced in you a cynicism about the Christian life and about Christ. If that's what Jesus' people are like, Jesus must not be much better. That's a wrong assumption. But all these forms of unbelief can make us dull of hearing, or like Jesus said to the Laodiceans, you have, lo- you have become lukewarm. You're no longer hot. I'd rather be hot or cold. But just to pretend and to say, uh, we're rich. We don't need anything. We're doing just fine. And he says, you don't even realize you're poor and blind and naked and helpless. You're lukewarm. Whatever the cause, this, this dullness of hearing is a serious spiritual condition. And that's made clearer when we look at the second point, uh, there's this, 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 this difficult uh, evaluation, this troubling condition, but secondly, a reasonable expe- expectation that we read in verse 12 that says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Think about that statement. By this time, you ought to be teachers. That's not saying that every Christian is supposed to have the gift of teaching. It's not to say that every Christian should be in some kind of full-time Christian service. 
But he's pointing out there is a deficiency in your progress, in your spiritual aspiration. Every Christian should take the Great Commission seriously. Every Christian should see the opportunities of those that God has entrusted to your influence to teach and to train them in God's Word. And we should be equipped to do that. And we're called not simply to witness to unbelievers, but to make disciples. In Acts chapter 8, when persecution broke out in Jerusalem, it said the apostles stayed in town, but everybody else fled. And not everybody, obviously, but lots and lots and lots of believers fled. And it tells us everywhere they went, they preached the good news of the kingdom. There was a spiritual zeal and a spiritual vitality that led them to want to tell other people of Christ they were not dull of speaking because they were not dull of hearing. One thing I find particularly interesting, the two individuals that we find preaching powerfully in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, one was a man named Stephen who was stoned to death, the first martyr. Another was a man named Philip whose ministry was recounted throughout chapter 8. They were both deacons. They were not elders. They were not apostles. They were not trained preachers. They were deacons, men filled with the Spirit and wisdom who served the people of God. And when they encountered unbelievers, they preached boldly. And he says, that, that should be normal. That, 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 should be, uh, that should be, uh, shouldn't be surprising to us. That's, that, that should be common. It is Normal. Now, as we look around, you, you could probably say, well, I know some Christians who are particularly serious. They're, they're zealous. They do not incorporate Jesus into their lives. They don't incorporate the church into their lives. They order their lives around Christ and around his service, around knowing the Lord Jesus and about making him known. They're actively seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And you may look at a Christian like that and think, well, they're the super Christians. They're the really spiritual ones. I admire that. I, I kind of wish I could be like that, but, you know, it's <laughs> a whole lot I'd have to, to change and give up to do that, so I'll just kind of settle. Or you may look at them and say, <laughs> they're just a little bit overboard. You know, I just, it's, you know uh, maybe we need to temper that zeal just a bit, okay? And, and clearly, there, there are people who do get kind of overboard and unreasonable things, but, but, but a zeal for the Lord guided by biblical wisdom is not odd. It is not, it is not something to be looked down upon. It's something to aspire to. Young people, listen to me. Teenagers. It may not be cool among your friends to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Maybe you're at a Christian school. Some of you are at a Christian school, but it's still not the end thing to get serious about walking with Christ and making him known and having the discussions about what God is doing in your life over the lunch table. But the reality is, if you understand who Jesus is and who you are and what he's done for you, you recognize he deserves nothing less than your wholehearted devotion, your life, your love, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When I was in high school, uh, there was a very popular ad campaign. It was the mid, early mid-70s. And the executives for the 7-Up company realized we are running a distant third behind Coke and Pepsi. Everybody's going for the colas. 
and we're not doing so well in our market share. And so they came up with a campaign. Some of you remember it. Seven Up the Uncola. You remember that? And they had all these commercials about Seven Up the Uncola, and they were really cool commercials. And they were, they were, they were, they were very appealing, and it, it, it boosted their, their, their market share greatly. Well, in my school, which is a church school, but not really with a full Christian curriculum like some of the schools you know of today, but God was doing a work among the student body, and a number of kids were converted, and there was a real zeal to love the Lord. And at one point, a number of us were, were talking about the fact that, that there's this pressure to be cool, to, to fit in with the cool people at school, and we recognize we no longer can. We can't play those games, and we can't say those things, and we can't fit in any longer. And so, playing off that commercial ad campaign of the Uncola, we said, we're the uncool. And it kind of became a, a, a binding force for us, a source of belonging where we knew we didn't belong otherwise. And I would ask you, are you willing to be uncool for the Lord Jesus? Maybe you're the only one who would be uncool. Maybe you've got three or four friends who would say, yeah, I'll be uncool. I want to be all in for Christ. You don't need to fit in. You don't need to be a part of the group. You need to seek first his kingdom and righteousness. These are precious years. And God can do amazing things in you and through you and for you if you'll seek his kingdom now. And at the end of Matthew 6, Jesus tells us the pagans seek after all this stuff. What are you going to wear? What are you going to drink, eat, put on? You know, you can, you can, you can uh, expand that out. Who's going to love me? And how am I going to fit in? And what's my life going to be like? And the pagans obsess over those. They're anxious over those. And Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God knows what you need before you ask. Put Jesus first and see what he does. It's an amazing adventure. And you don't have to be grown up to begin to see how amazing that adventure can be. Kids, you can experience God's grace in amazing ways, even as kids. But I want you to see, it is reasonable to expect steady growth toward maturity. He says, you ought to be teachers. He's speaking here, that word ought speaks of an, a solemn obligation. Everyone ought to aspire to know God's Word, to apply God's Word to your life, and to be equipped to teach other people the Word of God. In Ephesians 4, it says that God has provided apostles and teachers in the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And he goes on and talks about the need to be mature and complete. But that process has been short-circuited among these Hebrew believers. They have become dull in their hearing. They had fallen short of fulfilling the sacred obligation to seek the Lord, to know the Lord, and to make him known to others. They, they, they seem to have forgotten some of the things they once knew. They've lost sight of what was so precious to them in earlier years. Maybe the spiritual disciplines have either become routine or maybe forgotten altogether. Those, those faithful practices of the means of grace uh, in private, but in public as well. Uh, I, would love, I, I would love to see Sunday evening service as full as Sunday morning. I'd love to see Wednesday prayer meeting as full as Sunday morning. There's a hunger and a zeal. And I realize not everybody can be at every service. There are providential hindrances. I get that. But is there a zeal 
to know God, to make him known, to fellowship with his people, and not to simply incorporate the church into your life, but to order your life around knowing Christ and making him known among the community of saints. The growth of these Hebrew believers was stunted. Maybe it was because of neglect. Maybe they just had other things they were giving their attention to. And I would ask you, have you allowed yourself to become dull of hearing for your own growth to be stunted? Do you need to be taught again those things that you should have and maybe did learn quite some time ago? And to drive this point home, the the writer draws a a contrast. And this is our third point. He gives us a standard for assessment. There's this this mid-course progress report. And here's the standard that he uses that, that says this is good and this is not good. And it is this in verse 13. It says, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. Verse 12, you need milk and not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have uh, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And one of, one of the fun things around our house is we get to keep our grandson two days a week. And uh, at nine months, he's recently begun to eat solid food. Up to this point, he's had a steady diet of milk. That's all he could handle. And now we're introducing things like oatmeal and green beans and applesauce and so forth. And sometimes we spoon feed and he'll open his mouth and, you know, mm, I like it, do I not? Sometimes we'll put it on the tray and he'll pick it up and play with it and, you know, eventually ends up in his mouth. But he's learning to eat solid food and even to eat it himself. And over time, that's going to develop more and more. And that normal progress is it's something you would expect to see in a baby or in a toddler. And initially, it seems like these believers that he is addressing had made that kind of progress, but now it seems like they have regressed. Or maybe they, they, they made a little bit of progress, but they just kind of stopped. And they never progressed to the meat of God's word and of the Christian life. So he draws this contrast, the the immature and the mature, the milk and the solid food. The immature need milk. They need the very simplest instruction in the spiritual basics. Now, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, please hear me. When you are young in the faith, you need to master those basics. What does it mean to repent of your sins, trust in Christ, study his word? There there, there are uh, the communion, fellowship of the saints. And those aren't things we ever get past, but we can't stay there. There are churches where the focus of the preaching, week in, week out, week in, week out, is a salvation message. Preaching to unbelievers, this is how you get saved, and at the end of the service, they invite people to come to the altar and profess faith in Christ. And this church was started in the late 1960s specifically to get past that and to begin to preach the whole counsel of God. That was a, a, a self-conscious commitment that was made by the people who started this church. We want a church where we teach God's people the whole counsel of God, where the focus of the preaching is not to evangelize sinners, as much as, as important as that is, but as Scripture teaches, it's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And that the saints, as well as the preachers, are to evangelize the world. But week in and week out, we come to hear the whole counsel of God. And it's interesting, in our church's history, we did not start out as a Reformed church. It was as the whole counsel of God was preached that the church came to embrace those convictions. That's just a little history lesson there. But the indicators 
of, of, of spiritual maturity or immaturity. Those who are immature, they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. It's not simply they don't know much about the Bible or much about doctrine. It's they don't understand how to apply it in a practical way that leads to godly and fruit-bearing lives. Maturity means the powers of discernment have been trained by constant practice to discern good from evil, but the immature, they're letting stuff in that, that they shouldn't. They're, they're embracing, they're believing truths. Well, that sounds interesting. That sounds, that looks appealing. That's exci- they're doing a lot of exciting things over at that church. Maybe we should do that without really evaluating and exercising biblical discernment. And, and discernment here, it's more than theological precision. It's more than just being accurate. Thomas Brooks, when he talks about you need solid food, not just milk, he says solid food consists of doctrines, yes, but also commands and promises and blessings. Do you read the blessings of Scripture or the promises of Scripture and your heart is enriched, your faith is strengthened? We, in one of our hymns a while ago, it, it asked the question, uh, if, if, if all that God has done for you is there, how then can we repine? Do we know how to take the promises and the blessings of Scripture and apply them to our own personal struggles and find hope and joy? That's what it means to train our spiritual senses. A healthy spiritual diet includes, yes, the doctrines, the biblical teachings, absolutely has to, foundational, but also the, the commands, the promises, the blessings. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be mature or complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. The man of God may be complete. What does that maturity look like? He's furnished for every good work. It's a practical, fruit-bearing godliness. And if we don't get there, then we're not really really mature. Now, now, the writer says their, their powers of discernment are being trained. That's the ability, yes, to distinguish good from evil but also discerning what is excellent. Now, discernment is not a real popular concept in our day. You'll hear people say, well, I don't want to judge. We don't want to be critical. We, we, we need to live and let live. And in that spirit, all manner of wickedness and evil thrive and infiltrate our culture, our educational system, our media, and filter their ways in, at times even into the church. The world's views on things like sexuality, immorality, the law of God, and countless other issues. Uh, Christians have checked their discernment at the door, as it were, rather than speaking and saying, this is what God's Word says. This is what's true. We must train our senses. We must tra- constant training to uh, to recognize what's right and wrong, but not just what's right and wrong out there. That's the easy part. What's right and wrong in here? That's where our focus needs to be first, because we got to log out of our own eye first, don't we? So, we need to, uh, we need to do what the Scriptures, the New Testament tells us. We place this premium on discernment. 
which doesn't mean just heresy hunting and exposing every error that is hiding behind every corner. We don't want to become uh, censorious in the name of being discerning, but rather we want to do what Paul prays. Turn with me to Philippians 1, if you will. Paul prays this wonderful prayer in Philippians 1. And this is a prayer I, I frequently pray as I'm praying for other people and for myself. And if you ever ask me, Jamie, how can I pray for you? I'll tell you right now, you can always pray Philippians 1, 9 to 11 for me and for one another. He says in verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. It's not a loveless knowledge, and it's not a censorious discernment. It's a love that's abounding in knowledge and every kind of or all discernment. And what's the fruit of that? So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The starting point is abounding love. Not love simply for the truth of some abstract construct where you can be an expert in polemics and arguing for the truth. And you can win arguments, but you don't win people. But it's a love for Christ. And because you love Christ, you love his truth. You love his honor. You love his glory. You love his people. You love the world. You love what Jesus loves. By the world, I mean God so loved the world, John three sixteen expression. And that love should abound in knowledge and every kind of discernment, and the results are very distinctive, that you approve what's excellent. Not just you go out and smoke out what's wrong, but you approve what's excellent and embrace it. You're pure and, you're pure and blameless. You, you live a godly life. You, you bear fruit of practical godliness and you bring glory and praise to God. Now, another biblical word for this kind of discernment, this loving, knowledgeable, fruitful discernment is wisdom. We want to grow in wisdom. Wisdom has been defined as skill in living. It's the ability to know what is excellent, what pleases the Lord, and the discipline and the heart and the inclination of heart to do it, to apply it and be useful to bear fruit in every good work. That should be your aspiration. And hear me, that attitude should be normal. The attitude that says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship even of his suffering. I want to know him no matter the cost. That should be normal. That is normal. It may not be common. There's a difference between normal and common. Did you know that? It's normal for the Christian to love Jesus with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. But it's not very common. See, we're all a little bit abnormal because sin is abnormal for the child of God. Dullness of hearing is abnormal. Our aspiration should be to be normal in the sense of what God's calling us to be. And these powers of discernment, they, they, they involve or they require constant training that you, you study the Scriptures, you know what it teaches. And you, you pay attention to the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Do you attend Sunday school? Do you sit under the teaching? You can say, well, pastor, it says that you need others to teach you, and that's not a good thing. Uh, No, we always need others to teach us. I can tell you in recent messages that Pastor Mark has preached, I've gone home convicted in my own heart because I need that just like every one of us does. And so we never outgrow the need to be taught. But do you pay attention and take take advantage of the opportunities that God has afforded you to learn more of his word. 
This Berean spirit that, that, that knows the Scripture sufficiently that I can hear something and I can go back and I compare it to the Scripture and say, is that what God is really saying? Is what my preacher said, is that so? We shouldn't be threatened by a Berean spirit. We should be encouraged by it. And I want to encourage you to embrace that spirit that we read of in Acts 17. It involves learning, training your mind to think biblically. To think about the world, think about messages you hear, think about uh, what you see and what you uh, experience in biblical categories. You stand and you look at a beautiful starry night and you say, wow, those stars are, are, are beautiful. Or do you say, the heavens declare the glory of God. See the difference? It means you make decisions based on biblical wisdom and not simply on what's comfortable or convenient or pragmatic. This, this biblical wisdom, this, this discernment does not come naturally. It requires a constant intentional effort. And we're called to do that. So finally, we come to our fourth point, which is a call to action. Look at verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, these chapter divisions were not inspired. I don't know if you know that or not. But the scriptures weren't divided into chapters until about 1227 A.D. The verses weren't actually divided until uh, around 1555 they're helpful, but they're not inspired. And here we have a division of chapter, but the thought continues into the next chapter. So he says, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. That doesn't mean we should abandon these foundational truths. It means we stop laying the foundation and we build upon it. You ought to master those things and then build and grow on the foundation that's already been laid. Let us go on to maturity. And there it is. It's a call to action. It's not normal. It's not healthy to, to remain spiritually immature. It's not normal or healthy for my grandson to stay on milk endlessly. He needs to start eating solid food to nourish his body. I remember when I was a kid uh, swimming in the pool, in my neighborhood pool, there was this rope. And the rope, on one side of the rope was the shallow end, and the other side was the deep end, right? You remember, kids? You remember when you were little, and you look over to the deep end, and you're like, I can't wait till I pass my swimming test. I can go in the deep end. That's where the diving board was, right? And kids who didn't want to go in the deep end is like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you want to go in the deep end? Uh, it was something we aspired to, right? Well, we ought to aspire, not simply to wade in the shallows of the Christian life, but to dive into the depths and to go deep with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not simply for super Christians. This is for every Christian. This is normal Christian living. Now there are Christians who are personally ambitious. They crave attention. They want to be seen and recognized as godly, as gifted, as whatever. And that can be a very unhealthy personal ambition. There are other Christians who are very satisfied to remain unseen. They don't want to be noticed. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be uncool. They just, just want to be invisible. Let me come. Let me leave. Let me not cause any trouble. Nobody cause any trouble for me. Uh, there's no ambition to accomplish anything for the kingdom. But the call of this text is to a healthy spiritual ambition, to seek to grow in maturity and godliness and faithfulness and in fruitfulness, not for, the, not for the praise of men, but for the glory of God, not playing to the crowd. 
in order to be noticed. It doesn't matter if anybody notices or not. If they notice, that's okay. If they don't notice, that's okay too. That's not your concern. You serve faithfully with one goal, and that is to bring honor and glory and praise to our God by bearing much fruit and so proving to be his disciple. Now, just briefly, what, what do we make of these foundational truths that are mentioned here in the beginning of chapter 6? Now, we're all familiar with the concept of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And Martin Luther said the entire Christian life, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. We never get past it. But that's not the initial repentance and putting your trust in Christ that I believe is being referred to here. It's not preaching salvation messages week after week after week. It's going on and learning more deeply what repentance means and more deeply what it means to trust God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why we have chapter 11, which is the hall of faith, as it were, the catalog of the faith of the saints, because we never get past learning to trust God. But that initial trust, that, 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 that initial experience, build on that foundation. The other things, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the matters of things like uh, uh, washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, we can look at those and go, I don't remember a class where that was the focus of our early Christian experience. Well, he's writing to a first century Hebrew Christian church or people. And those were carryovers from their Hebrew experience that uh, the church was grappling with those kind of issues and trying to figure out, well, what about the washings? Not simply just baptism, but the washings. Well, what does that mean? And, 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 and the laying on of hands and, and, and what of all these things? And we've sort of figured out some of that over the years. But the point is to build on the foundation and don't just stay at the lower level of Christian experience. Get busy, get serious about growing to maturity. And he says in verse 3, we'll do that if God permits, which means it's not all up to you. You can't, you can't grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in your own efforts. If you make no effort, you won't grow. But we must always approach with boldness and confidence that throne of grace where we receive mercy, where we find grace to help in time of need. So you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, what would be on your spiritual progress report? Are you pressing on to maturity? Is that your goal, to, to be like Christ, to know Christ, to serve Christ, to bring glory to Jesus Christ? I want, I want to close our, our message this morning. Read from you, read to you, and you might turn there. I, th- I think it's going to come up on the wall. Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 to 10. Peter says some of the very same things, just in different words. But I want you to see how vital this is that we press on to maturity. His divine, Hebrews 1, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the, from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. Remember what Brooks said, these deeper things, these promises, these commands, these blessings, these doctrines? It's right there, isn't it? These blessings and these promises of what God has done, they're ours, and we should know them well. And for this very reason, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Yes, we need to know. And knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, and that's normal, 
that we be characterized by those things in growing measure, not perfected yet. That'll be heaven. But yes, they should characterize our lives and that we should be growing in those areas. And if that's the case, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ from being dull of hearing. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. May God give us grace to make every effort to be the men, the women, the young people the Lord Jesus has redeemed us to be and the God in his word is calling us to be. God, give us ears to hear, hearts to respond.